0: This is
1: World Beyond War, a new podcast.
2: Welcome to episode 26 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, coming to you again from Brooklyn, New York, and you're about to hear the first podcast episode I've ever improvised without knowing who I'm going to be talking to. And as a now experienced podcaster, I've got to tell you, this is an exciting way to create an episode. So let me fill you in on the whole story here, and let's start by talking about what it means for a person to make a decision to go to an annual conference. World Beyond War runs a global gathering of anti-war activists every year. And I remember the date back in 2017 when I saw a Facebook ad from this organization that I had never heard of, because this was the first time I had heard of World Beyond War. The No War 2017 conference was in Washington, D.C., and I have really thought hard about whether or not to go, because it's not really an easy decision to just say, okay, I'm going to go travel to some city to go to some conference. However, I'm a techie by trade, a web developer, and I've been to some great tech conferences. Maybe it was the fact that Edward Snowden was going to appear at this conference by video, and also Daniel Ellsberg, that made me really want to check this out. And also, folks I knew of, like Medea Benjamin, David Swanson, and Ann Wright, were going to be there. So I made the decision to go. And you can see the result before you because I shortly after became part of the organization and am now on staff as World Beyond War's Director of Technology. So obviously, I'm glad I made the decision to go to No War 2017. We had conferences in Toronto in 2018 and Limerick, Ireland in 2019. We had big plans for No War 2020 in Ottawa, Canada, which was going to coincide with a protest against Canada's CANSAC International Arms Fair, which was, and this was kind of the point, also going to be taking place in Ottawa, Canada at the same time. But then COVID-19 happened, and Canada canceled its big military weapons festival in Ottawa. But thanks to the great work of our director of organizing, Greta Zaro, World Beyond War went right ahead with No War 2020, which was a very successful virtual event taking place on Zoom. Now, there are a lot of pros and cons to in-person events and virtual events, and that's one of the topics we'll actually touch upon in the conversations that follow here today. When we decided to do No War 2021 as a virtual conference, we knew this had the benefit of allowing people who would, for any reason, not be able to travel to an in-person conference to show up. So this helped, and it was a really great gathering. It took place from June 2nd to June 4th, 2021, on a sort of friendly social conference platform called Hopin, rather than just good old Zoom. Um, What you're going to hear today is a series of spontaneous interviews that I did with people who showed up in my podcast booth during the three days of this conference. I took a special interest in people who might be attending an anti-war conference for the first time, just as I had done in Washington, D.C. a few years before. I really wanted to know how they were experiencing this virtual conference, and of course I wanted to talk about anti-war activism itself, which we do a lot of in the conversations that follow and I wanted to hear what people thought of the panel discussions and poetry readings and workshops and other stuff that was going on. Everybody you're about to hear from has one thing in common. They all made the decision to come to a global gathering of anti-war activists in June 2021. I think that shows very good judgment on their parts. So I thank them, and I hope this podcast episode will inspire listeners to attend our future events, both in person and online. The online conference began on Friday, June 2nd, 2021, and the very first person to drop into the podcast booth was Julie Watkins, who had an interesting slogan attached to her conference profile. I like your message, more peace, less capitalism. Yeah.
3: That's not a, one person at least thought it was a group, and no, that's just the slogan I saw. <laughs> I saw it a t-shirt that I liked.
2: More peace, less capitalism. It could work. The conference had barely begun at this point, so I couldn't ask my first drop-in what she thought of the panels. Instead, I had a question ready, which I actually hope to ask a lot of people, because this is the sort of question I'm always asking my guests, in one form or another, on this podcast. Julie, what do you think of the state of the world right now in 2021 in terms of, you know, the, the hope to end war and the, and the concern that, you know, I, I guess what I, what I want to take the temperature of people who visit this booth is, are things getting better or worse?
3: Well, I think that a lot of stuff is happening locally and that's going to help.
4: Mm-hmm. Because
3: COVID has taught us that we have to um, help each other, and it wasn't. I was afraid it was going to be a problem here in in Champagne, and it wasn't. But I think places where uh, it was my, where they're much more crowded and in crowded apartments, people still survive the winter,
1: mm-hmm. and they've
3: learned, and uh, that you have to depend on everybody. Yes, and that. I think a lot of the people who want to keep the money keep trying to tell people it doesn't matter. It, you haven't won unless you've won the whole state or you've won the whole country. But if you're keeping your community safe, you've won there. And if people, more and more people imagine and work and get the uh, uh, what they can do to make their thing better and just not cooperate. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been great stories that I've heard on World Beyond War about um, how non-cooperation actions have stopped one thing or another because the local people said, "Well, I know you think you own this this land, and you and you can do what you want mm-hmm. here."
2: Yes. Well, well we're not going to let you. And not, I mean. What I'm taking from what you're saying is that you're you actually feel there's been an increase in community cohesion, and empathy. Maybe is you know through the COVID yeah. crisis that and
3: then we're, teaching, we're a lot of people are saying no, I don't want to go back to work. We would rather because um, it's <laughs> yeah. not safe and they can't. It, capitalism keeps you busy.
2: It sure does.
3: So stress that you have to spend money at the fast food places.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. people
3: are taking time to think and plan
2: i have to tell you when i asked you this question i was worried that everybody i asked this is going to give me a pessimistic answer and i love it that you immediately gave me an optimistic answer because you're i think you're right i think you're right there has been a cultural coming together during this covid crisis um and you it you can inform read- us Yeah,
3: People should read Ursula K. Le Guin. She talks about imagination quite
2: a lot when she's
3: talking about utopias.
2: I hope you'll listen to um, an episode of the podcast I did with Rivera's son and a writer named Vanessa Veselka. It was called Activism and the Imagination. By this time, a friend from World Beyond War had come in, John Ruer, who our faithful podcast listeners will remember from an earlier episode called This is America. John is a peace worker and a member of World Beyond War's board. After his response, Julie introduced herself as an activist and retired university librarian, and I asked her some more questions. I'm so glad you had something positive to say. John, do you think there's an increase in empathy or in, you know, community?
5: As I look at the whole world, what's going on, the return to authoritarianism in so many places and the clear willingness of people to hurt other people uh, to get what they want and to learn is – my initial impression, gosh, it's the reason for pessimism. <laughs> but yeah. I think it's like it's like gun ownership in the United States. There are more guns per capita now than there have ever been and people are buying them like crazy. But fewer and fewer people are buying them. So I think what may be happening, I agree with Julie, that more and more people are getting aware this stuff doesn't really work. Violence doesn't really work. It's not to end all. War isn't necessary. But the people who do believe in it are working harder than ever to try to impose that view on the world and themselves. So it's an interesting dynamic that way. And I don't know how it's going to come out. If, if, we, can, if we can forestall a major war, a major power war, or nuclear weapon use, then we might have time to work
2: it out. I agree very much with with that, John. I I see it the same way. I think there's a a wide coming coming to awareness, but at the top, at the power levels, there's a reaction to it that's trying for oppression. And I'm worried we're headed for a a fortress world, you know, fortress America, fortress Israel, fortress England, fortress Europe, you know, and it's a horrifying future to even imagine
5: but plenty of reason for hope too i mean uh, you know i was in south sudan with nonviolent peace force looking at their 60 years of of civil wars for somebody else's in their own and and then while i was there sudan overthrows a 26-year tyrant (laughs) dictator which is people power so it's always a waxing and waning. I I think uh, I think there's always good, and and that's where you want to put your attention and not give up.
2: Hey Julie, what is your um, activism background, um, and how did you get here?
3: Uh, <laughs> um, it's world beyond war. Actually, is uh, some place where people talk like I do. Mm-hmm. I'm ex- I, I'm not in the middle of any activism, in that. Um, most of the people locally want to do labor or um, other things, or they, they want anti-war, but they lecture people too much.
2: Right. And I don't
3: think they get very far.
2: What do you think is more effective than lecturing?
3: Um, meeting people where they're at. Instead of telling you, telling them how how
2: what it yeah you know that's that's a lesson i could probably take myself (laughs) i i think you're right it's so easy to get caught up in in the intensity of your own beliefs um so is is that something you've always tried to do to meet people where they're at
3: i try not to be a leader because i get very nervous about stuff and I lose sleep, and I'm not a good organizer. The times I've tried to organize things when it wasn't um, to do, it was social stuff, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. What I try to do lately, and then I don't do as much of it as I'd like to, is keep track of what's happening locally. There are some very active people who want to um, get the police review board to actually do its job and stop having their city people, city staff that keep trying to obfuscate and prevent anything from happening. And I try and put public comment to support what other people have already said. Right. So I listen to what other the people who actually have done the research. Mm-hmm. I pick things out and repeat it and say, oh. hey, I heard you, and let the um, people who want to spend more money on police and they won't listen to people when they quote, quote, can quote all these studies that it's bad for the kids. Mm-hmm. Well, it's bad for kids, that they don't care about that it's bad for, apparently, because they keep doing it.
2: Later on Friday, after a stern poetry reading by L. Jones, we were joined in the podcast booth by another friend and close associate of World Beyond War, Bart Bolger. We all chatted a bit about nationalism and about the labor movement's relationship to anti-war activism. You know, I always wonder, when do we move past nationalism? And I wonder, is that a dream too far or an, an ambition too far to think that someday we don't have to be forced to belong to any nation?
6: I don't know. It's a, That's a tough one. It's a, To me, it's kind of a generational thing you've got to get past, like racism. You know, you've got to, you know, start with really young people and or attitudes that are passed down by parents to their children, because we, the, the propaganda uh, fed to us. I mean, right? Yeah. You know, even in children's cartoons, right from early age, about patriotism and militarism, and you know, the little little GI Joe characters and all the rest is just—it's so difficult to overcome. Uh, and then mean,
3: you know the war and blah blah blah
6: blah. Indeed, indeed. You know, yeah. and the, the you know the the analogy about racism being you know a generational thing to get to overcome. I always thought I was doing enough by sort of being a firebreak. I grew up in a, in a pretty badly racist family. My, oh. my father was terrible, uh, but you know, I figured, and I knew I was carrying that baggage myself. But I figured as long as I could be the firebreak between me and my daughter, or between him and my daughter, I guess. Uh, you know, that she would be okay. But then, you know, at some point I realized, well, that's not enough. You know, you've actually got to be out there and active and be anti-racist and try to influence other people than just the than just your offspring. And I, the same, I think the same sort of thing has to happen with nationalism and, you know, this, uh, well, just, it, I mean, there's a lot of racism built up in that. So the two are very intertwined, aren't they? Mm-hmm. At least. Okay. There was all sorts of
3: nationalistic class flag- waving in my high school, but I don't remember much. It's just that I remember when I came to college, um, I found out things were different, and that's what got me into going towards toward socialism, just because uh, that sounded made more sense to me than capitalism. But... Uh, um,
2: what type and of if ind- you
3: tell people, uh, "Oh, we've got we're, we're the best, we're, we're the best country because everybody has rights," and then you find out they don't, well, I don't I don't trust government anymore.
2: Well, it's good that you've just decided to, you know, use your time to try to get involved in causes.
3: Well, solidarity is the only way I'm going to. People will survive. You see, the people who, who get to the top in this stupid capitalist system. Got to be backstabbers. Well, I can't do that. So I got to have solidarity.
6: That's a really great way to put it, Julie.
3: And, and I don't discount what black people say because, or indigenous people say because they've survived when everybody's trying to kill them. So I should listen to their advice.
2: Were you at the main event today when, I don't know if you remember when Richard Sanders was speaking? He was one of I don't, the first speakers. We, I, well, me. he was the first one, and he said something I really liked about preaching to the converted. Um, oh,
3: that's correct. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He said, you know... I wrote
3: preaching to the converted. I put that down.
2: Ha, wow. I should make sure he comes on the podcast at some point. You know, well, I think his point was that we say, why bother preaching to the converted, but even the converted, us. You know, people who are aware enough to be at an anti-war conference constantly make errors of judgment or become misguided and you know make bad decisions about what we believe or which which politician to trust. I thought that was really great. You know, what makes what makes a person decide that they want that they are converted? What why were we the lucky ones? How come the, how come we're converted, you know?
6: The other valuable thing to me is um, and and kind of my my take on that was that one of the great things about this conference is that it's bringing together people from all these different countries. Yes. And even our peace activism is very sort of, you know, ethno or national centric. You know, we tend to think about, you know, the, the, the U.S. war making machine. I've been I've been startled by some of the numbers and uh, you know policies of Canada. So I mean, I'm really, Mm -hmm. you know, so I I feel pretty, pretty woke when it comes to the peace movement, but there's a lot of these different efforts out there that, that, and I think the key is building international solidarity. So I think there's where I see real value in a conference like this so we can hear each other's stories and share, you know, visions and, and, you know, the struggle that other folks are going through.
7: Yeah. Well,
2: Bart, what other movements are you involved in?
6: Um, well, actually, where I get some of this international solidarity, I'm also a wobbly. I'm a member of the IWW, ah. and uh, and
3: I love Wobblies.
6: <laughs> yeah, uh, I was a, I was a letter carrier for a while after I got out of the navy, and uh, I was involved with just a little bit, not that much activism, but with uh, the letter carriers union, the rural carriers. But it they kind of left me cold because they, they focused so much attention on either planning the national convention or lobbying Congress, you know, they, they, they weren't really out in the streets and doing any direct action. And I had some friends that were wobblies here locally, and I started talking with them and going to their little meetings and we're up over, we've got a tiny little town of only about, I think we're under 60,000 people in town, but we've got about 80 people that are registered wobblies you now dues paying wobblies.
2: Bart, can you explain? pretty what a, active. Can you explain what Sorry. a Wobbly
6: is? Uh, the uh, industrial workers of the world uh, you know, started out in 1905, and they, they 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 call them we call ourselves the one big union because we're not a craft union. Uh, you know, whereas uh, the other sort of brick and mortar unions, the big business unions, are focused on crafts like mm. electricians or bricklayers or so forth. We're uh, open to all, in fact, we welcome dual carrier, du- dual card folks. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be yeah. a member of SEIU and a Wobbly, and you know, so, um, but we, we just, uh, we don't have, uh, we're not focused on crafts. It's all, one of the other distinctions is the Wobblies have always been very welcoming to all uh, sort of the more oppressed folks that don't get you know, like people of color who don't get very good representation in a lot of the trade unions. Mm-hmm. In fact, the AFL for the for a lot of years, especially right after World War One, they pretty much explicitly banned uh, people of color from you know a really? lot of the uh, trade unions. So, and, and the Wobblies have never been that way. We've always had a very strong contingent of uh, people of color. So, and and it, and the other thing is, you know, it's it's international. So we, we find a lot of strength in, in working with, uh, other countries, you know, wobblies in other countries and mm-hmm. Canada has a lot of wobblies.
7: They've
6: yep. been all over the world. A lot of that came from folks that were in the shipping industry, you know, like, uh, longshoremen, you know, they tend to bounce around merchant Marine folks will bounce around. And right. so you get this cross pollination between countries.
2: Would you say that the labor movement is um, aligned with the anti-war movement?
6: I, I think some of the unions are more progressive than others, um, and I mean you see that depending upon the issue. Like the, you know, the nurses are pretty pretty progressive. Uh, electrical workers are very progressive, and they'll they'll occasionally. You know, there's a, there's also a, a group called uh, Labor Against War. I think it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, US labor against war use law. Um, So there are pockets of of war resistance within the labor unions. But you end up with a conflict of, you know, some of these people, electrical workers, for instance, that might be, you know, working at a Boeing plant. And they go, you know, what do I do about that? So, you know, I mean, you run into the same thing within the environmental movement, you know, you get labor on both sides of uh, you know because of the pipelines you know they they'll promise jobs at drilling they promise jobs so it's a lot of the particular the trade unions are are so heavily focused on jobs you know they kind of you know the the, yeah. the the morals and ethics kind of take a second well, tier
2: I mean as you know talking about US politics here um, to me this is what the the green new deal was invented for is, is to point out that doing better at taking care of the climate and stopping investing in war can actually create jobs. You know, think of, think of all the jobs that we can create if we start improving the climate. Um, and think of all the jobs we can create if we have a peaceful world instead of a world at war
6: i think that's part of the plan but you know the devil's in the details and you know yeah. how the program is sold and, and you know can you convince a whole you know, well i mean uh, uh west virginia is a good example of uh mm-hmm. trying to sell you know these mine workers on somehow you know shifting their industry to something more sustainable it's you got to come up with a, a, a plan that people can really hold in their hands and figure out how it's going to affect them personally. That's it's something where you know, it's, it's a tough challenge. I, would, I wouldn't want to try to put together that plan. Cause <laughs> <I'm>,
2: <laughs> well, it's our challenge. Here we are. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> we were also joined by Kate Jones, who introduced herself as a person who had been involved with World Beyond War before. How long have you been involved?
8: Oh, just about since David Swanson started it.
2: Nice. Nice. Yeah. It was great to hear, see him lead a session today.
8: Well, just for a couple of backgrounds, it's that I'm a child of World War II. I sat in Europe while the bombs are falling on us. So wow. I have a firsthand feel for how bad wars are.
2: Where was we were that? Ref- Where... We were
8: refugees. Where was I? Yeah. Both in Hungary and in Germany.
2: Oh, my God. Well, bless you for being here. Um,
8: Well, I have a keen interest in philosophy and in human nature and human consciousness, how people think, how they get to have certain ideas that are so bad that they cling to them anyway. Why is our government so against Iran? Iran Iran hasn't hurt us in any way. They have not attacked us. They haven't bothered us. They finally resisted against our trying to control them. I lived in Iran for three years as well, so I have first-hand acquaintance with some of those situations. My favorite way to introduce myself to folks like you is, I'm a Martian anthropologist. I am here to study the human race. Nice. So I don't take sides as such. I'm against killing, so I'll take sides for people who don't want to kill. Mm-hmm. If you know what I'm saying here, politically, you might say I'm more on the libertarian side. I don't really want to belong to any party because they all become extreme at one point or another. They all want to control everything else. And I want each person to be alive and happy and free. So, um, as far as how humans think the religions are all invented by humans. All religions are ideas that were invented by humans. And they learn from each other, and then they exaggerate it here and exaggerate it there. And then they try to impose it into politics, which is how they control other people. So if we don't want people to be totally subservient, but you know why that happens? is because human society has always depended on living as groups for mutual help. And that eventually sets up a situation where... The biggest, strongest, smartest guy, usually it's the guy, not always, but gets to be in control. And that establishes this whole societal system of rulers and ruled. And we can't get away from that because we need each other to work together as groups. Mm -hmm. Civilization depends on interactions, on uh, what you call the division of labor. People who work at things that they like, they are good at. So they get to do those jobs. We need each other, even in a family, the smallest social unit. You see, yeah. the kids have talents in one direction or another. So they develop those areas. But the thing that I wanted to tie together is that that is really not much above the way animal herds work together. Mm-hmm. You know, you have animals that live in groups, whether it's an extreme case like beehives or something more ruler free like. Dolphins or monkeys or whatever. So we have not come that far away from our more primitive beginnings life forms that work together. Yeah, and we are still imbued by the defense mechanisms that were built into us through all those millennia Actually millions of years, but I'm hoping that you guys who are looking for peace and coexistence may make that breakthrough in human consciousness, that we can say yeah. we are not going to give in to our animal instincts of kill everything that isn't my way, kill everything that's different, but learn how all humans need each other. It's wonderful that we have differentness, because that means there's more talent available with which to solve problems. Well, anyway, that's sort of the direction in which my thinking... Well,
3: I think that I like the fact that World Beyond war. It's getting more global, mm-hmm. and I think you have gotten a lot. There's um, you get a lot of standing in the fact that you're saying all wars wrong, not yes. just just yes. this particular war. That it makes people say, "Who? Oh, you're actually you actually might help us because you're against all wars." For for somebody who's being the pawn between one big country and the other. I think I got international because it was right after um, they bombed the Twin Towers. Mm -hmm. I was in a uh, mailing list that had international people in it. They were all English-speaking, but, and somebody was saying the thing, oh, well, we're always worried about what the United States is going to do because it's just this big, clumsy dog. Hmm. And um can hurt people and not realize that. And then the more I started reading, I realized well, no, they, a, a lot of what the US does is very predetermined. And it's because people on the top want to act like they own all of us. Yeah. And, but it was this offhand comment from somebody who was uh, living in, um, one one of the ex uh, ex British colonies in in Oshie, um, ocean. She wasn't Australia, but she was close, and that kind of got me started to reading, and then I I stopped um, being patriotic. Well, I wasn't really to begin with, but then I were. Oh, you're being programmed to be patriotic, and I won't say the pledge, and I won't stand up, and I won't do anything with the flag. And I call it Armistice Day, not Veterans Day.
2: Yep, me too.
3: We need a peace. We need peace um, holiday.
8: It's got too many war holidays. <laughs> we need to get over seeing war as somehow heroic. Yes. This goes back to very old times when gladiators and, and fighters—that was the heroic way to be. Well, and so all of all of our soldiers who were drafted by the way which means they were slaves had to go out and fight and kill other people this is a sickness it's a it's how should i call it in the in the field of ideas it's like a cancer it grows and destroys from inside so this is just a footnote to my previous speech but the idea that um war is somehow A good thing and we should be brave and proud of it is 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 a cancer cancer that grows on the inside and eventually destroys the host
9: we need to get past
8: that we need to somehow teach people that if they have those ideas they pick them up it's a disease they picked up a virus and they should learn to get over that we need an antidote and of course I'm counting on World Beyond War to be one of those antidotes.
2: Well, that, and you, Kate, and you, Julie, we're, we're, it's not just World Beyond War, it's all of us <laughs> who, are, well, you know, who are part well, of it.
8: Well, on the grander scheme, you are all members of that one big family yes. who wants yes. peace and life.
2: I just want to make sure whenever anti-war activists talk, we say we, you know, not, yeah. you know, we have to do it together. I mean, now all we have to do is convince the other 99% of the world or of the country.
3: How much in the world where they're talking about, let's take um, Me Too, where the the, the people are being harassed at work because the boss is powerful. Yeah. Right. It wouldn't be an issue. He wouldn't get away with it if he couldn't take your job away.
2: Right. So the power, where the power (laughs) is, is where the corruption will be.
3: if we actually had an actual democracy where the people who are affected get to vote on a thing and they have to instead of having pretend democracy mm-hmm. we don't have a democracy any place where the rulers are acting like they own us there's not a democracy there we need real democracy there,
2: there, was, there was a time where I thought the USA might be one but certainly not in the last few years and maybe never <laughs>
3: Uh, Hamilton. Hamilton. From what I've read, other people's analysis, Hamilton made sure mm. that, um, yeah, it, that there was always always was going to be stoppages. That when the rich people say no, we're not going to cooperate with that, that they get away with it.
2: Yeah. Well. It was designed
10: so- that way
2: since i'm a new yorker and i saw the musical hamilton that that's a tough one for me because i sort of kidding there but it's
9: great music it's
4: great (laughs) music i love it yeah
2: but yeah that might be white whitewashing history a little bit i was very pleased with the results of my first day of spontaneous interviews early on day two i had a crowded room including a couple of familiar activists at world beyond war our tech volunteer, Scott Oates, and our board member, Donald Walter, along with two people I had not personally met before, Margaret Rao and Noelle Marshall. We talked about a lot of stuff, including the first day's poetry reading by L. Jones and the first day's panel discussion in which Hamza Shalban described what it's like living in Yemen during a recent bombing attack. We also discussed a breakout session on China with Jody Evans that a couple of us had attended. These were just some of the moments from day one that stuck in our heads as we began day two. Margaret, tell me what brings you to this conference? What's your connection to the anti-war movement?
10: Well, I represent Canadian Unitarians for social justice, um, but I'm also a member of Canadian Voice of Women for Peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I connected with World Beyond War uh, at least two uh, conferences ago. So there was one in Toronto. Was it two or three years ago? I'm losing
1: track. <laughs> that was that at was of, three. Yeah. At
10: conference at the in-person conference. I know there was one in Limerick, Ireland. I did not attend that one.
2: Mm-hmm. I was there too. Um,
10: <laughs> yeah. So I I've been connected through our groups.
2: Mm-hmm.
10: Um, are you? Uh, do you sit on the board, Mark, or are you?
2: more involved um yes um and by the way hi noel i remember you from yesterday's Hello. event um, oh <laughs> so to answer your question margaret i i was originally on the board as an advisor and then i became the director of technology which basically means i work on the website Okay. and scott has helped me it's mm-hmm. good to see you scott um so, Scott's been a bit involved as well. And um, yeah, we're, so I started as a volunteer. I started by walking in to the Toronto, con- uh, no, the Washington, D.C. conference. I just walked in without knowing anyone, and here I am. Oh, I was there. Oh, you were there, Noel. Great. At American University? Yep. You know, I think the first two were there. I was there. Mm hmm. That's right. You were there for both of them then. Mm-hmm. Wow. You've been with this for a while. Um, Noel, what, what's your connection to the world of anti-war activism? <laughs> well, uh, I support him,
0: I guess. I, I met David Swanson. There was a, a seminar called Beyond Nationalism at the uh, Peace Pentagon in Southwest Virginia. Mm-hmm. And David was there. I was very impressed with his knowledge. And um, I learned a lot. And so I just have been following. I've been participating because, you know, where do we get this information? You know we're right. not taught any of this stuff, and so I said enough of this. So I I just you know involved that way. Actually, I'm having Greta Zaro and uh, one of your one of World Beyond War uh, volunteers, um, Laurie Timmerman, is going to be part of our World Unity Week at the end of the month. My husband and I just call ourselves Blabbermouths for Good. <laughs> I you love know, it. So, now, we don't make money. We just try to connect people and raise up uh, things that we think are positive for humanity. How's that sound?
2: No. Well, Blabbermouths for Good sounds great. I think I relate to that. Are we all Blabbermouths for
6: Good here?
10: <laughs> <laughs> we try to be.
0: <laughs> yeah. Our, our official name is Light Partners. Some people say Light Workers. And I said, look, I'm retired. I don't like to work. Yep. So I'll I'll partner. I'll partner with people. So I'm always looking for more partners. That's what we are.
1: We just go over. Do you
9: do you have a link to that, Noel?
0: So this is about my husband and I. What we call ourselves. And
2: um, oh, very nice. Lightpartners.org.
0: Yeah, and um, and we have another group of what we call uh, co-creators convergence. Anybody's ever heard of Barbara Marks Hubbard? It's actually Daniel Ellsberg's sister-in-law. She no. was a futurist and a visionary and in 1984 she ran for vice president of the United States. Hmm. And if you ever wanna if you ever want to know about her, she she um, you just go to YouTube and put Barbara Marks Hubbard, 1984, okay. and her speech to the National, the Democratic National Convention will come up and you'll say, if only we listen to that woman. It's just amazing. So um so this co-creators convergence was actually started by her. And uh, she passed a couple years ago at like eight. She was teaching like on Thursday and gone on Saturday. And so her name is Barbara Marks Hubbard. Wow! Great. So, just put, so I don't mean to dominate here, but uh, put that into YouTube. hmm And you'll listen to you know wisdom. Great. <laughs> so anyway, thank well, you. Um, thank you for
2: inviting me. Yeah, sure. And um, hi, Donald. Haven't haven't said hello to you before. I. I'd like to know what you all thought of the um, of yesterday. You know, what were your impressions of yesterday? I, I just would start off and say, I love that spoken word poem um, that kicked oh. us off. Phenomenal. Phenomenal.
4: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it actually had me like, like. I mean, I know that's what poetry is, but the rhyming and the rhythm and the alliteration and, and all it just and, but but the themes were like really powerful and like like who can say that stuff and who knows all that stuff? I right. mean things that uh you say, Wow, did did she say that? Mm-hmm. It was pretty and, fearless, yeah. Uh it was um but the panel with Daniel and Bianca and Hanza they each, they each said something completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each one of them were so insightful and so. Particularly Hans, I mean, this yes. is. You know, he lived through this uh, yeah. war in Yemen. And um,
2: when he described what it felt like to have a bomb go off nearby, and he described how shocked, how physically shocked he was that for, you know, I think for, for some amount of time, he couldn't, he couldn't even function. And, and then he said it was a couple of kilometers away. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what an, what an insight this is into what it is like to live in Yemen or Gaza or Syria or Afghanistan. And, you know, sometimes it's not a couple of kilometers away. Sometimes it's, it's in your house um, that to me that was a stunning yep. moment to hear his description. Yep. you know what it it's it's odd that it it brings it so much more personally when somebody describes it from first person to live. First in person. Yemen. yeah yep. you know actually yep. Noel by the way, is it Noel or Noel? Noel Noel, okay, great. You and I were in the China session with Jody Evans. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? This was the break. Yeah, that kind of
0: blew my mind. You know, I came in just a little late, but she gave the history of the Chinese civilization and Mm -hmm. their, you know, how they work together and what their, you know, um, worldview was and how that differs from our imperialistic, capitalistic, uh, point of view. And, um, you know, I really wanted to go to that one because I was looking at all the different topics and I said, okay, I'm kind of familiar with stuff, stuff, stuff. China. Okay. I don't know anything about China, you know, except yep. that China bad. And so to go hmm. there and to learn, you know, 2 million Chinese killed in World War II. 20, how many times did you
2: hear million. that? 20 million. 20 you- uh, yeah. million. I was shocked. I was shocked when she, yeah, and I, I looked shocked. that up. Then
0: how many in Russia?
2: More than that. I mean, yeah.
0: Yeah, Russia lost, you know, and, but we're the heroes. We're coming at the last minute and saved the day. Yeah. And, you know, just about, you know, the relationship with Taiwan and Hong Kong and these different things, you're going like, you know, it, you know, when she said all of this is like echoes of Iraq war mongering and look what we've done over there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just really appreciated it, although I know that, you know, they, they still have their humanitarian issues and things, but you know we are like uh, uh, we're given such a little teeny peak hole into the country, and and our media controls what that what what we can see through that peak hole. And uh, <laughs> I'm really fascinated. She said they're going to be taking a trip there next year, and I'm thinking like, wow, would that be cool?
2: Yes, you know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So
0: anyway, that those were a few things I took. I really really thought it was a very good session, yeah. very eye-opening.
2: And, you know, the way I think about the human rights issue in China is that war, and the, I actually said this in the session, you know, war always makes human rights crises far, far worse. Take a human rights crisis and add an invasion by a foreign power, and now you've got a human rights disaster that can veer towards genocide. Um, war does not help. Us us attacking China does not help their human rights. Us making peace with China would help their human rights. The podcast booth was really starting to find its rhythm now, and I next found myself in a rewarding conversation with two more attendees, Jean Cushman and Pauline Mary Lally. We talked about several of the workshops, which covered topics such as disruption and divestment, and about the purpose of the conference and the peace movement as a whole. Jean, um, what brings you here today?
10: Well... I have been so impressed by World Beyond War because I was in a shutdown DC action a couple of years ago and um, World Beyond War was in it. Mm -hmm. And it was such an amazing action. I see it as being so essential to other issues. You know, I, I think that war impacts you know our environment which is one thing that i'm really interested in as well for sure war is just you know it's it's like one of these things that capitalism uses to keep us divided i think
2: um the profit motive we we, well
10: the profit motive but also the yeah the uh, patriarchy
2: mm-hmm. and
10: religion and so on that are kind of tangled up in kind of keeping us at each other's
2: throats. which is where which is where we are in the world right now. Yes uh,
10: right right
2: absolutely. And,
10: and there's a group called the um, Peace, Peace Peace Literacy, Literacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I'm really excited about now. What's it called Jing? Peace, literacy. Okay. Um, The thinking behind it is, you know, we are kind of imbued with a war culture every day. Um, Yes. Pledging the allegiance and singing America and all these other kinds of cultural, like, interconnections with war. We need to... Actually, teach people peace, how to, you know, get along peacefully.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, education is one of the one of our pillars at World Beyond War. In fact, we now have a we have we have a full time education director. And I think Pauline, did you? I think one of you two said you were in a course. Was yes, that Pauline? Mm-hmm.
9: I've taken I've oh. taken a, a couple of them
2: mm-hmm. and
9: since I've been in this uh, lockdown. You know, in the pandemic. So over these uh, right. this year and a bit, I have taken, sat in on a few of your offerings.
2: You know, I like, like the th- next
9: one.
2: Oh yeah, the ne- there's one starting this week. Um, you know, my problem with the concept of education is that we all think that education is for children and adolescents. <laughs> and so I like the idea of peace literacy because boy, a lot of us grown ups sure need to be educated too. Um,
8: That's so- for
10: sure.
2: Yeah, what has impressed you during these? Either of you um, during these um, sessions? Any any particular speakers or poems or you know any anything that stands out to you?
10: Well, I was just in an exciting uh, group that was discussing weapons expos and how you disrupt them.
2: Mm-hmm. It was
10: it was really really good. That... It was an amazing.
2: Does that mean stand up and disrupt them? You know, like actually physical, physical, actual disruption. They actually, this one of the groups was on
10: top of a tank. So that was really a pretty incredible thing But they did all kinds of amazing stuff. They had people from Extinction Rebellion disrupting the drinks time. Mm-hmm. And they had, they had, they just had those incredible, incredibly imaginative, strong kinds of actions. Yeah. That was in Australia. I, you know, I'm trying to think do they have any weapons expos in DC, which is close to where I live, or <laughs> in another
9: state that. It <clears throat> was okay. in Ottawa that they had ARMEX several years ago.
2: Yeah. Think, right. Uh, I mean, show when
9: I, went up, I went up to that to buy a few. No, yeah. I went up to protest along with a group at the, one of the gates.
2: Oh, awesome. So but you were you were disrupting yourself.
9: I've been a little disruptive in my life.
2: <laughs> the way you say that makes me think you've been very disruptive.
9: I don't know Uh, I was you know I was you asked what I was impressed about. I came from the divestment one
2: me too well I was
9: impressed with the youth
2: like
9: Mm -hmm. to me me, everyone's young but I I just really thought these young people were so articulate uh, about investments and about finances uh, they were really up to notch I mean I, I was quite impressed Uh, with that and I was also impressed yesterday with the man from Yemen
4: oh my god
2: Hansa yeah oh
9: yeah and the very fact that it's a forgotten war like we're not paying a whole bunch of attention to it and the fact that you know I have written letters to Trudeau and the selling of our arms to Saudi Arabia. What the hell are we doing that Why, for? Why are we linking up with the states in so many places? It's just disgusting.
2: Exactly. You know, I just want to say how much, how nice it is for me to run this little podcast booth, meet, meet folks and get a chance to talk. Um, yeah. Do you? I, I'd like to know whoever wants to answer. Is this making a difference? Does a conference like this make a difference? I think it does. Go ahead, Jane.
10: It is really energizing me. I don't have relationships with people that are so energizing, and so this is an incredibly energizing experience, and um, I'm excited. (laughs)
2: I'm not going to lie, I also get energized by conferences, and the excitement level in the podcast booth is only going to continue to grow, because on the final day of the conference, Sunday, we actually formed an entire panel discussion, including several wonderful peace activists. We all spoke with each other for more than two hours, capturing far more conversation than I could possibly use in a podcast that tries to be only one hour long per episode. Well, I don't try that hard, but I do try. Anyway, we talked about a lot of things in the final day of this conference, including intergenerational trauma, indigenous cultures, democracy, socialism, collectivism, child education yet again, and nonviolent communication, which one attendee, Paul Mellet, said could have been improved even among the participants of this anti-war conference. So, we really get into it here, and I only wish I could include more of the great conversation. You're about to hear from, in order, Scott Oates, Mariam Ahmad, Paul Mallet, Terry Sleva, myself, and Julie Watkins.
1: Today was most informative how the weapons expos, you know, kind of work behind the scenes to.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, and they lie about it, and it's like, well, you know, how do we counteract?
10: I think about this is um, you also see like individualistic versus collectivistic societies. So in certain collectivistic or individualistic societies, there is a concept that forgiveness is seen as weakness. Let's just say, for example, and this, this has nothing to do with um, any other factor apart from just that this is how it's seen because there's such a strong sense of nationalism. If we teach the next generation that we need to heal from the intergenerational trauma that everyone is suffering from. And as a result of that, they are creating these ideas and policies and ingraining them. We need to overcome that. So I think that everyone needs a lot of therapy.
11: (laughs) If you're gonna look at the root cause, you know, what are the root causes of this? In, In the work that I've done in international development, it's usually not systems and structures, you know, and laws. I've been in places in, in, in doing work in, for example, in a country where they have the most beautiful Westminster system you could imagine, in Africa, and yet it's as corrupt as could be. I've never seen so much corruption. And then I've been in other places where um, they, I can't make heads nor tails of, of, of how they're organizing or running themselves or whatever. It seems to be chaos, but it runs well. Hmm. And the common denominator seems to be: if you've got good people, any system can run. they're all good people they won't they won't take advantage of it and they'll uh, they'll help each other you know the the decision making criteria was how is my decision going to benefit the people you know something as simple as that you know can make a community run yeah so um i think the problem is is people you know and then the question is how do we get there and and i think with education of children is where you've got to start You've, you've really got to look at what kind of people are our children are we producing with values and beliefs and things like this?
1: What I'm after is grassroots. Grassroots in the sense that we are all equal. The indigenous people prior to the settlers coming here. I've been studying that a lot. They had a sense of equality. Women were just as important as men. Everyone had a role and everybody had to do things. Now, if you put a label on it like socialism, I don't know. if It's basically grassroots organized people who help each other. And until we help each other in real senses with all of our talents, whatever they may be, we're not going to have a true democracy.
2: I got to say that as long as um, our government is run for the profit motive of defense and fossil fuel um, investors, we will never have a good government. And that's why we must end war. That's, you know, and again, you know, I don't think ending war is a nice to have. I think it's, I think we're committing suicide if we don't end it. And, um, and one, one of several reasons is that war leads to corruption of government, as is evidenced by the United States of America. In the form of donations from the worst capitalists, the
11: the, the worst of the worst. And, and as I said before, what, what you need is good people. And, and you need to raise good people. And uh, in, the, in that sense, and then they will be more altruistic and, and uh, share what they have with uh, other countries that are uh, disadvantaged, let's put it that way.
3: I always say that whenever there's a mass shooting and the fact US, USA is number one for the mass shootings, and so, and and all the gun stuff, and it's we've got this bully military that just goes and takes what it wants. Yes, this is our foreign policy. You now, what? And then, and then the police do what they want. They have the police, and we're teaching people. We're our culture is teaching the mad, angry people that might makes right, and. Since that's what they want to do, they'll take the example and go with it. And one of um, David Swanson's lists is how many of the mass shooters are ex-military. Because, hey, they know how to use the guns.
2: That was Julie Watkins, who was with me all three days of the conference, and I especially thank her and all the guests. Here's our last segment, and then we're going to close with an excerpt from L. Jones's poem. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And please come to our next live events. Okay, our three-day-long conversation now concludes with once again Mariam Ahmad, Paul Mallet, Julie Watkins, and finally some closing words about ducks from Terry Sliva.
10: Oh, I'm glad to hear that this is the sixth conference, and um, I'll probably make it a priority to attend the seventh one in person.
1: Yeah.
10: Um, wherever it is, the U.S., Canada, or even Europe, I would probably go. Um, as a, as far as the peace movement goes, I believe it is the most important movement in the time right now. Yes, um, yes. Require, yeah, literally to maybe even save humankind. This is the most important movement.
11: Well, I th- I think the the platform's remarkable. Um, I um, would never have been able to afford. Traveling to all of these conferences that I go to you know now that I have access to many internationals so um, there, there certainly is is that
2: uh... well um, you know i do I do like the in person too, and I do wonder if we if we're going to be able to come up with a hybrid of in- person and virtual where neither experience suffers. Um, I think that's the dream um, Terry.
1: Talking points, inspiring, tiring, but (laughs) educational, we need something like this, let's live up to the title world beyond war, and we're doing it, you are doing it, I'm so impressed. If I wouldn't have been able to be attending, of course, like Paul. Had it not been for COVID. So we'll 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 capitalize on what I don't like that word.
9: <laughs>
1: on COVID. And use it to our benefit.
11: You know, all of this conference in World Without War is about communication you know, and all the ways that we're going to communicate. We're going to communicate by protests and direct action, dialogue and very, and, uh, various ways. And I think there needs to be some consensus or at least some uh, opportunity to understand uh, what is good communication and what isn't. And if I was going to run the conference, I would add a little teaching session and whatnot, nonviolent communication. It's as, it's as simple as that, you know, taking advantage of some of the Gandhian philosophy and, and whatever and, and to kind of set the stage that, um, that you know, we can, we can certainly be uh, anti-war, we can certainly be trying to abolish war, but, you know, the way I would like to do it is I would like to be for peace, you know, and peace building, and, and that, that's the kind of the way I would, uh, I would approach communication. How does this build peace?
3: Well, somebody read, and I can't remember, of course, where I read it, that they've done um, the system. Cause is such that other uh, many other countries they have politics where people disagree equally much, but since we have the first past the post system, that winner take all. Yeah. That that means it's things are frozen. The 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 it's harder to come to a compromise on this the system that we have.
2: Isn't that the spirit of war when, itself?
3: Even when USA pretends that they're trying to spread democracy, like Iraq and other places, they they're power, parliamentary. They didn't try to do the system that we have.
2: That's right. Yes, it's life.
1: <laughs> mm, well the thing is in the end there's a saying in Me- or a parable in Mexico a bunch of ducks came together at a conference they walked to the conference and they listened and they were told that you can fly you have wings you can actually go up and they were so excited And then they walked home. Mm -hmm. Let's not be ducks.
2: Let's not be ducks. Let's not be ducks. And here's just one minute from the poem by L. Jones that we heard on day one.
7: Martin on campus helps bill our tuition. We say we're building new weapons to strike with precision, building new drones with facial recognition. We're building an economy on death and attrition. We're building new treaties on nuclear fission. We build NGOs and we send in tacticians. We use foreign aid to build imperialism. We build occupations and call it assistance. We build cholera, refugee camps, malnutrition. We build piles of dead bodies and decomposition. We built a new world from 9-11 fruition. We're building this world off of war repetition. The theater of war is an endless audition. We built Al-Qaeda. We're building militias. We build retaliation, a cycle so vicious. New York, Beirut, Paris, Mali, and Garissa. Military strikes just further ignition. We build global war and there's no intermission. We're building ourselves out of human existence. And we're not bystanders. We're not on a mission. Because don't you hear that radio transmission? Don't you remember? Take it back to the beginning. We built this city we built this city on land we stole built this city we built this city on land we stole thanks so much for listening to today's podcast our podcast is now available on itunes google play spotify soundcloud and stitcher don't forget to give us a rating visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine, and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.